from Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. This is Medically Necessary. Welcome to Medically Necessary, the official podcast of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff. I'm Chris Honig, joined as always by Dr. James Sowitz. Dr. Sowitz, another beautiful day in the medical neighborhood. Absolutely, Chris. You know, so in the snow, it looks like it is continuing to melt, so I'm happy out there. Ah, yes. Spring finally upon us and so much promise, you know, with uh, the way COVID, the trajectory has changed in the past several weeks. In the hospital, we've seen our numbers decline finally below 50. First time we've had that since, uh, what was it, mid-November. You look at hospitalizations across the state, they're as low as they've been in that same kind of time frame. Nationwide, things look like it's getting a little bit better finally. Yeah, I think there is really hope. I think people are kind of enthusiastic. They literally see a light, you know, at the tunnel. And so we'll, uh, we'll get through this. But I think, you know, as, uh, as, as our president has said, you know, yes, it's good, but wear a mask, be safe, you know, and we still have a lot of work to do. I cannot lose sight of that. Social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, all still so important as we continue to move forward, as we continue to get more and more people vaccinated. It's going to be key to keep those numbers from rising again. And we would be remiss if we did not recognize the incredible leaders we have had here at RWJUH throughout this pandemic over the past year and going well beyond, you know, before this pandemic started. The leader, the director of our infection prevention team, Pat LaFaro, joining us right now. Pat, this has got to be a, a special moment for you because the end of this second surge is marking the end of your professional career. Yes, it is. Well, my professional career here in New Brunswick. Uh, hopefully I'll do still a little side work. But um, yeah, as far as hospital goes, it's... Um, the close of my era. Um, I'm a, one of the original infection preventionists going back to the early 70s. So I you've been doing this for like, like 25, 26 years, right? 37 years. <laughs> 37 years in infection prevention. Wow. So this yeah. is, but to your point, your specialty has been built in this time. I don't think infection prevention has ever been as important as it has been through COVID. Absolutely. Um, I came to New Brunswick when Ebola was just hitting, um, and I'm leaving with coronavirus, but this really has been probably the greatest challenge of my entire career or any infection preventionist career. I think it has taxed all of us uh, beyond belief uh, as far as our resources and time. And just the challenges of trying to keep up with the ever-changing uh, protocols, you know, sometimes several times a week, you know, PPE would change or uh, guidance documents would change. So it really has been, um, you know, an incredible challenge, an incredible journey. I think hopefully we are on the better side of it. Um, and as you mentioned, I think the vaccination is the, the key to helping us uh, stay safe from COVID. And again, all of our masking and social distancing. As we, we were coming out of this for now, it's so important that people just don't forget that. It's very easy to fall back on being more comfortable, but we still at this point have a few months at least uh, really still being very careful. So looking at your specialty, infection profession, particularly in the hospital setting, which really is 
and evolve, has been evolving especially over the last several decades during your career, literally. It was not a surprise to people in your specialty in the, in the biggest sense that a pandemic happened. I mean, this kind of thing had been anticipated in literature by Tony Fauci himself, you know, for years that this kind of thing could happen. Even the model of it coming out of Asia, you know, in discuss. So that wasn't, you know, at the simplest level, a surprise. But looking at your specialty, what do you think your specialty anticipated? And what do you think, how do you think your specialty was surprised and learned and grew through this event? I think that it came so fast. Once it hit the first few cases, it was very rapid onset. And I, I think the shocking thing and, and scary part of it in the very beginning last year was how deadly. I mean, people literally coding in the ED one after the other after the other. It's nothing that in my wildest dreams I would have imagined sitting and hearing over the overhead code blue, you know, sometimes 10 times a day or more in the emergency department. How that group of people have lived through this is really incredible. I, I just can't even imagine having to be, I work hard, but but the staff that are in the trenches, they work a lot harder and certainly emotionally um, incredibly draining for all of them. I would never have imagined to hear the code blues that we heard during the coronavirus in March and April. I think the at least the second go around was very different. You know, our, our ICUs are not as nearly as crowded um, and most of our patients seem to be the medical patients who again aren't even staying usually five or six days versus weeks. So I think the scope of it, the deadliness of it in the first was just beyond anything I could ever imagine. Fascinating. You know, so I, I would say, and it, it, this is obvious to anyone that had the pleasure of working with you during this event, that your leadership was one of the things that made it easier for lack of a better word, for those people in the emergency rooms and on the floors, you know, knowing that people were trying to, you were there, that other people you know, in your kind of position were there, were trying to anticipate these changes, were trying to give people the tools and the information as quickly as possible. You know, you made it, your sort of leadership made it possible to get through this sort of an event. Well, thank you. Um, but I have help. I have a great team. I Dr. Barakoff all of my staff uh, who worked tirelessly 24 seven with me. And certainly, you know, we're, it's just a team effort to try to keep everything going. And Chris, we also have with us this morning, you know, uh, Michelle Petrani, who will be following Pat uh, in its role, you know, as a director of intention prevention. So I mean, congratulations. Thank you. You know, so, I mean, you also worked very hard this last year, so you're, you're right there. So, you know, you've learned the lessons that we, all of us learned and you've given that leadership. So, you know, you, you, uh, we're, we're excited to, to see you stepping into this role and moving forward. So it's an exciting time going forward. And hopefully you'll get at least a few months break before the major, next major break. <laughs> <laughs> we you shall know, so, see. Uh, well, but, but I think that's, that, that alludes to my next question. And it's kind of a question for the two of you. What, how do we look at the world going forward? So, you know, tomorrow they give the first shot of uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine. The virus is magically gone sometime, whatever, whenever that is, I'm being extreme. But so far we've dealt with this. 
how do we look at the world differently going forward? I mean, what is the what are the permanent lessons here? Um, you know, that the, we as healthcare providers to the individual patient and the community should have, should have learned from this and should carry forward. Well, I, I can honestly say uh, the lack of uh, supplies, the supply issue was definitely something that I was not uh, anticipating as much, um, you know, and, and learning how to uh, conserve and be creative with uh, what we had, um, you know, anticipating that, you know, the likelihood could happen where you would run out and what would you do then? So we're constantly thinking about uh, options and moving forward, we need to be mindful of these things because uh, we don't know when the next one will come. Yeah, I, I think really being on top of your supplies is key because we thought about it during Ebola, Ebola kind of went away and then nobody really paid much attention to having you know, good PPE supplies or supplies that were still in date and not rubber bands that are breaking because they've got dry rot and stuff. Um, so I, I think that's a key thing. I think for people in general, I, look, there's no flu. We've had four Amazing. cases. There's no flu. Four cases that have been admitted. One of those a pediatric in the entire flu season. And we're now at the end of February. But all the practices we were doing to keep safe for coronavirus, hand hygiene, disinfecting of everybody's washing down their grocery cart before they push it. You know, people are disinfecting their hands constantly. Uh, we're masking. I don't really want to stay with masking, but uh, the hand hygiene and the environmental cleaning are things that we should all realize how key they are to everybody's safety for any type of organism bacterial or virus, and keeping your hands away from your eyes. Yes. I think as a society, too, uh, the, the vulnerability of it, uh, you know, we're, you know it, it shows how easy something, you know, healthy people uh, can be affected. So um, it's, it's an eye-opener for sure for us and what to expect. I think that in, as a profession, people tease us for the hand hygiene. When they see us, they're, they're washing our hands, and we're the hand hygiene police. But now I think they have a little healthier respect for us because they know it's a lot more than just that. But it, it was a major component, and it's talked about every day. So, Michelle, you've been with us in New Brunswick for about 25 years, part of the IP team for about 10 years. Pat, you were at Somerset for 26 years before we merged back here in New Brunswick since that merger for the last six years. You both have had this perspective of the experience when we were more independent hospitals. <laughs> How has being part of a system, Pat, I know you've been the co-leader for the system infection prevention team. What advantages of having a larger system behind you has that provided? You've talked about the supplies and, and you know, being kind of surprised by, by how much of a struggle supplies would be. What advantages has being part of a larger system really provided during this time? I think the advantage is the size of the system that if one hospital had more supplies, they were able to share or move things around. I think your buying power is better, maybe a little bit more political clout to get things. I think those are probably the advantages. I mean, there, there are times that we didn't have things that one of the other hospitals that Sunset would send something or we would send some you know, equipment over to other hospitals if we had it. 
you know, most people weren't aware of that. So if we had an excess of, of some and and fives and one of the sister hospitals had was out, we would shift and, and share our stuff. And just generally sharing information uh, within the system, different regions impacted a little bit differently at different times during this whole thing. So being able to reach out to another hospital and see what they were experiencing and, and kind of uh, communicate uh, what might be coming next for us uh, was, was very helpful. That's an important point because it shows that one of the lessons or the things that we need to do between crises or when and the lull of crises, since we're in the medical business, there's always going to be something out there, um, is to build systemness and those connections and those because, you know, all those pieces, you know, are important, you know, and the reverse of that, you know, and Michelle, you alluded to this, you know, the vulnerability of certain individuals, you know, our need to reach out to our communities and to build those connections, you know, because we do know that this virus, you know, hit, uh, you know, diverse communities, vulnerable communities harder you know, than other communities. And, you know, as, uh, you know, Barry Ostrowski is, is fond of saying, you know, we're not going to succeed as a system until our entire communities are healthy, period. Um, and that shows, again, the need to be, make these links, you know, and, you know, and to reach out. And it's, uh, it, it, the opportunity is there, but also the obligation. Yeah, I, I think it's Michelle alluded, the communications, it's really one of the good, really good things about it is we have a monthly infectious disease, infection prevention leaders that meet monthly, even through a lot of COVID. We only canceled a handful of meetings. And, and that's just a, it's a great exchange. It's very difficult getting a lot of IDs and a lot of IPs to agree on everything, um, but we can't make everybody happy. Uh, but it really is a great way to share a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of intellectual capacity in that. In that group, and not only including IDIP, but pharmacy and quality. So it really is a great group and a great learning experience. One thing I've learned in infection prevention, you never stop learning. Every day, there's always amazes me. There's always something more to learn. So Pat, you're I'll do still when I retire. <laughs> I'll actually so that, have time to read it. <laughs> well, that's again, that leads my next question, Pat. So you're, you're stepping uh, uh, down from this position, you know, and uh, what, so what is your plan? Uh, well, first it's going to be a few months of uh, decompressing and having fun. And then I have to decide on the do. Well, I do do consulting and ambulatory. So I may take on more clients. I dropped a lot of them actually when I came to New Brunswick because it was too time consuming in New Brunswick to have private clients. So I'll probably do some of that and love to travel. I have a daughter moving to Tokyo, so. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and hopefully grandchildren maybe. So, you know, lots of fun. I'll learn how to play golf. Uh, I have a piano sitting in my living room, so maybe I'll actually take lessons. Outstanding. So if, if you were to tell future leaders at Robert Wood, or just to really put you on the corner, Michelle, um, <laughs> a, 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 a lesson that you've learned as a leader at Robert Wood going forward, what would that be? Just communication is key during this whole process. I mean, it was be a beautiful thing to be able to coordinate uh, between, you know, EBS, uh, cleaning of the rooms during the pandemic, to environment, um, environment of care rounds, which included, uh, you know, facilities, uh, pointing out maybe our weaknesses, things that needed to be worked on. Just, you can't survive in a silo. 
you really can't and, and be able to function and thrive and come out of this okay. It really is a, a coordinated effort. So if, if anything, working together, uh, communicating, uh, we're key. And along those lines, that level of collaboration, you know, we, we've talked about some of the ways that, that public behavior may change post-pandemic. Aside from the collaboration, what do you think are going to be some of the, the changes that we see at a hospital level in terms of infection prevention or beyond that as a result of this pandemic? A lot of private rooms. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Maybe people will take us more seriously when we talk about things, right. you know, and, and it's not going to be uh, here they come again. That's right. You know, see you more as a part of a team, not always there for a problem. That's a good lesson, so. Well, you know, Pat, thank you again for all your work, you know, over the years, but particularly through the penultimate crisis of your career um, in this last year. Uh, you know, we, you know, obviously wish you luck, you know, and going forward. And Michelle, you know, I look forward to working with you, uh, you know, in the you know, years to come. And anything, of course, we can do to support you. Uh, you're always welcome back on the podcast. Thank um, you very much. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and thank you for, for what you're doing and what you're taking on. So thanks both of you. Great. It's been great working with you both. Pat LaFaro and Michelle Pedrani, the outgoing and incoming directors of infection prevention here at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, New Brunswick. Speaking of past and future, we now have a museum at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. We'll be sitting down with the curator of our anesthesia museum, Dr. Enrique Pantene, coming up. We'll be right back. What makes a hospital an academic medical center? Being one of only seven nursing programs in the world to receive the magnet designation five times. A nationally recognized children's hospital with specialties including regional perinatal care. A neuroscience team closing in on the nation's third largest killer. A partnership with the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Cardiac medicine, where hope is transplanted along with hearts. A comprehensive liver disease and digestive treatment center. A bariatric program with long-term results. And a level one trauma center that's above it all. Research, education, patient care. Everything you'd expect from New Jersey's premier academic medical center. Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Let's be healthy together. Medically Necessary, the official podcast of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital medical staff. Welcome back to Medically Necessary. Chris Honig here, as always, with Dr. Jim Sowitz. And you know, Dr. Sowitz, the last week or so, all of a sudden, it, it just feels different out there, right? I mean, all of a sudden, winter took a step back for a few days. The snow started to melt off. Then J&J &J presents to the FDA. And all of a sudden, it feels like spring and truly in that sense of rebirth. Like there is a light coming, like things are getting better. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. There's this microscopic feeling that there may be uh, hope, you know, we get beyond it. You know, they, you know, how pathetically sad this is that, you know, we're just reaching and hoping is I looked out my window this morning at home and I saw the edge of my roof. I mean, like, literally, this is what I saw, not covered in snow. And I go, I can see the edge of my roof. There's hope. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, as the snow melts, as the sun comes out, as people get vaccinated, 
as we spin out of this thing, um, you know, I, I do think it's a, we're looking forward to some really exciting and positive things going forward here. You know, and the reality is, Chris, there are a lot of really outstanding things that are happening here, um, you know, and in the system and in the state. And we have, well, we have a lot of work to do. A lot of it's positive. So I'm kind of looking forward to this year and the things that we that are going to happen. And of course, as we look forward, in the words of George Santayana, you know, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so maybe a little history lesson is in order. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Enrique Pantin, a member of our anesthesiology team here at RWJUH and Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and the curator of the Anesthesia Museum. So Dr. Pantin, thank you for joining us and thank you for your incredible collection that you have. Well, I appreciate first the invitation. It's uh, really nice to be able to talk about something that I like uh, a fair amount, if you might guess by what you see. And uh, so, Chris, thank you, and Jim as well for uh, giving me this opportunity. Um, well, I've been uh, in, in our uh, system now since uh, 1996, uh, first as an intern and then a resident, and then I you know, went away, did my fellowship. But before that, I had also a life in, in Venezuela, where I actually am from, you know, uh, my mom from Michigan my, and my dad from uh, uh, Venezuela. So I did medical school over there and practiced for like three and a half years. And at my practice, I saw how uh, what we were doing in anesthesiology in particular, but also in, in, in the medical field in general, how things were evolving really, really fast. And I think there was a, a time uh, for us, a little uh, less young uh, practitioners, that medicine was moving uh, faster in, on some areas, especially in equipment and technology. You know, we went from the, you know, rotary phone to, you know, the cell phones, you know, and the uh, same thing, the media of communication. The same thing happened in, in my specialty and anesthesiology in particular, technology took over. Uh, and as I saw technology coming in, I also saw a lot of the old stuff disappearing. And also I saw a lot of those stuff actually just put in a corner and, and uh, sometimes in a box and sometimes in the trash. Uh, and I, I felt like uh, and a little, I'm not going to say hurt, but I felt a little like, I don't know, nostalgic or hurt or, or I don't know exactly what it was, but, but it didn't feel right to have these things actually disappear from, from our view uh, and kind of in a way forgotten, you know, and it's very easy to forget, you know, our uh, predecessors and the people that actually had inspired directly or indirectly for what they did or the, how they, you know, set up the land. So that's how it started, uh, you know, spark uh, the curiosity for me to start this uh, little collection that became a little bit bigger. <laughs> it's fascinating. You know, I mean, I think the, a point you make indirectly is that, you know, we build on what has been, has come before. You know, none of this is just, just shipped us from Amazon in reality. The reality is that it had to be created one step, one step, one step at a time. And it's been a long, very challenging journey. Um, and it's exciting to be part of that. And I think it's important to recognize that because it helps you understand your place and what is possible, um, you know, as, you know, as we go forward. So I, so I, so I applaud, you know, your uh, decision to make sure we keep that history so that we understand, you know, where we can go as much as where we've come from. Yeah. And, and uh, this is, uh, the funny thing about this is, you know, you start collecting and you think the, uh, you know, you will get to the bottom or to the end of, uh, let's say, a series or, or some idea in general. And then you discover there is another layer under and then another layer under. And then what you thought was, you know, one or two, you know, discoverers or, or, or the fathers of some area is like, you know, 100 people more under them, you know, and, and before them. And it's, uh, 
it's just quite amazing though to see um, how easy, besides forgetting, but also uh, not realizing that how all what we are now is thousands and thousands of people, in, in, even in the smallest area, that actually contribute one way or another. And, uh, and that's something that's been interesting and fascinating to me to discover that I will never be able to complete a collection. Uh, I, I will probably be able to complete some areas that are very, very uh, small and, and also how big the world is because we see, we see many things as like, you know, American or, or from whatever other country we know a little bit, but it's the, the whole world, you know, like uh, just from, from what I have, I have very minimal things or nothing really from China, for example, you know, so I, I know nothing about how, how things started over there, except what the books tell us. And, and, and that uh, gives a, a little more understanding how deep, uh, you know, the history really goes into the details and how also how many people, you know, came with an idea almost at the same time at different places and the one that talked first is the one that got the credit, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, and I do think it also should encourage us to, as clinicians, as academic clinicians, as scientists, to reach out and make those connections. You know, that, that you know, it's one thing to really study hard and understand the thing that's right in front of you, but also to understand that in the world, there are other people, as you say, that are interested in many of these problems and we learn from each other. And that's where a great, or maybe one of the great strengths that we can have. Yes, and and uh, with that, it's interesting because uh, at least you know we think, or I think, you know, I used to think, you know, like the medical doctors in anesthesiology, and then as I continue to move forward, you discover other people that had nothing to do with medicine itself, just engineers. They got curious about it, and uh, you know, there are a, a few of these that that I you know, have in my collection in terms of uh, you know, heroes or forefathers, even though there are many. And, and there is one uh, or a couple of these in particular, you know, that uh, you never knew about it. You know, it's a, a, a PhD gentleman called Richard von Forger, who was, uh, you know, born in 1872 and he died in 1960. But he invented wow. so many machines uh, or, or uh, elements and uh, tools for uh, anesthesia that he was everywhere. You know, he had laryngoscopes, he had different tubes, he had, you know, intubation sets for, you know, the military, he had anesthesia machines for the military. We actually have a, a, at least one uh, machine uh, here that is uh, from a 1950s, actually for military use, uh, that I was lucky enough to, to uh, get from uh, a person who was cleaning a basement of a school uh, and they bought a, there were a bunch of boxes in that, in that school. And he actually said, what are you going to do with these boxes? And they said, oh, we're going to throw them away. So I took him to his house. And when he opened, there were old anesthesia equipment there, among oh, other things. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, he puts it for sale. And, and uh, I got a hold of them. And I actually, you know, acquire it. And it's like out of the box, you know, pristine, you know, uh, new machine uh, from 1950s uh, for military use uh, with all the components, which is a beauty, never used, you know. So otherwise would end up in the garbage, you know, which is, uh, again, um, the, the sad part, but the interesting part is, you know, gentlemen like, uh, you know, non-physician, you know, engineers actually, uh, you know, did so much for this, uh, you know, specialty, you know. What other things or what other kinds of things are in the collection? Yeah, so I, I, my initial curiosity was preserving stuff. So when I started in Venezuela, I found medications that were no longer in use. Like they used to uh, use before propofol that everyone knows about propofol, you know, uh, as a sleeping agent and for colonoscopies. Um, we used to use thiopental a lot. Uh, and I got a hold of a five gram vial. And just to, to give an idea, the normal dose is, you know, like a, a 
tenth of that or, or uh, in terms of a dosing for a patient. So they used to have this multi-dose vial that you can actually draw all the practitioners and then use for your particular patient. And this is what we're talking about now the 80s and, and 70s, so not, not too uh, long ago. And then, of course, Propofol came in, uh, into American market in 1989. But it took, uh, it took uh, three years uh, from England, where it was uh, discovered, to America. Because Michael Jackson brought him over, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Michael, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> the Michael Jackson uh, uh, drug, I guess. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing about that, because this is, again, going into uh, details here, the doctor who discovered Propofol was a veterinary doctor it started working for a company that was used to be called ICI. It was an imperial chemical, uh, you know, uh, industries in England. And there were thousands of uh, molecules that were not studied. So when he got there, he started looking at different molecules, looking with his background in veterinary medicine or something to put the animals to sleep as, as initial concept. And he screened all these molecules that they have. And he found a few that were interesting with anesthetic properties. And then in 1973, he discovered or uh, this drug has been in the shelf for who knows how many years and put it to, you know, different studies. It took 13 years to come to market. Just to show how, you know, someone that was curious enough to look into what was available in the uh, library of drugs in a, in a chemical company found a medication that it ended up being you know, in a revolutionary you know, medicine and anesthesia in general, you know, in particular, I guess. Uh, other things that I have in the collection, uh, so uh, start from uh, as early as anesthesia was uh, discovered. And, and we, we talk about, you know, the discovery of anesthesia is something that happened at a particular date. And I, and I think the, the main discovery was, uh, you know, the use of a drug that at that time was ether as the drug that could be used uh, to actually provide an you know, awareness and amnesia and, and immobility in a patient, you know, that was uh, submitted to surgery. And that actually occurred in, uh, you know, 1846. But before that, it had already been discovered in 1275 uh, and then uh, synthesized in, uh, by, by uh, in 1540. So I really... Oh, really so Ether was, was available in 1275? Discovered in 1275 and synthesized in, in 1540. That's how, that how much time it took to realize that Ether was a drug that can actually put someone to sleep until finally someone made a connection. It took, you know, so, uh, so we should, I shouldn't be too frustrated that J and J got the viral approved today, <laughs> but we won't have the virus till next week. <laughs> no, <laughs> give, yeah. give him another week. <laughs> give him another 700 years. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's funny because, you know, a drug is available. No one actually made the connection. They were, you know, in the early, uh, 1800s, in late 1700s, you know, ether parties and, you know, and nitrous parties just to smell and, you know, people will pass out and, and they, they just use it for fun until, you know, a physician, you know, uh, I was actually a dentist in 1846, you know, Dr. Morton, who did uh, the, you know, the, this, the demonstration. And, 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 uh, and this was interesting too, because he decided to demonstrate, it had to convince a, a very famous surgeon and mass general uh, at that time, uh, it was Dr. Uh, Warren Collins actually to demonstrate this in public. And when he did, you know, it's like October 16, uh, 1846, it became to, you know, fame. You know, the surgeon said, well, this is no Hamburg. You know, it's actually, it actually works. And, and from there on, just, uh, you know, it's all history, I guess. <laughs> fascinating. Really one fascinating. One of the things I found really interesting about this collection, one of those facts that I learned, you know, Dr. Crawford Long, right? One of the, oh. the fathers of, of anesthesia. Doctor's Day, National Doctor's Day celebrated March 30th yes. because... 
of Dr. Crawford Long. Yeah, this, he is really one of my heroes because this, this town surgeon, a medical practitioner, he did everything. He not only did, you know, general medicine, he did, you know, pediatrics, he did, you know, GYN, obstetrics, you know, everything. So it's, uh, Crawford Long was actually a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. And then he moved to uh, a town called uh, Jefferson in Georgia, where he had his, uh, his uh, practice of medicine. His brother was also a physician. He also had like a drugstore in those days. And he made the connection before uh, Dr. Morton. So he made the connection uh, in 1842, uh, even before that, and decided to use it in a patient who was extremely nervous. He had a, a neck mask. And the, the patient had come two times to have it excised, and, and then he you know, went away. He didn't want to have, have surgery. And then he told him, let's try this um, you know, drug that I have that I think is going to help you and, and it'll make you, you know, not suffer with the surgery. So in March 30th, uh, 1842, uh, Dr. Crawford Long actually excised, administered ether to this patient, uh, and uh, his name was James Venable, the first, first actually patient documented to receive a general anesthetic, and he excised a mass. And, and when he finished, uh, the patient woke up and he said, well, when are you going to do this? He said, we're done. It's, the mass is out. And, and, and that's how everything really started. The unfortunate thing for him is he never actually publicized it. He did other cases, and it took a while. And in my collection, I have a book that his daughter wrote in, in 1928 about his father, just uh, showing all the tribulations that a, a you know, small town uh, surgeon physician will go through and, and uh, kind of demonstrating that he was the first physician who actually used ether as a general anesthetic. So he's actually really the, the true father, although an unknown father, and Dr. Uh, 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 Morton is the known father in, in a way. And I don't hear a lot of IRB approvals in any of this. No. <laughs> uh, great times, great times, James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so run out and back and take a shot. Yes. Wow. So this, you know, the, these things are on display. And, and when can people see those? Yes, they're available. Uh, we have them on, on display um, in uh, one of our uh, halls. They have a fair amount of traffic uh, in front of the same day uh, surgical suite area. And uh, they, uh, they're going to be there at least for six months, I hope longer. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to move things along a little bit and, and keep people uh, interested in it. Uh, they were in display before, though, in the anesthesia uh, department in the CAP building. But there's an area that only has traffic from us and, and uh, candidates when they came for interview when we used to have, you know, uh, candidates visit the department. And so they were uh, located in, in an office, in my clinical office, actually, I have many of the items and I have another office with some of the anesthesia machines as they take some space that Dr. Lewis, uh, our chair actually, you know, uh, gave me the space to do uh, this. So they've been, you know, displayed, but in a much uh, less uh, public, uh, you know, area. Um, and, and that's a very nice thing that we have the opportunity to put them in full display. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that like everything else in medicine, I have not done this by myself. Uh, you know, I've, I've over the years have collaborators. I have, I think it's a list of 12 people that actually, uh, doesn't matter how small the piece, I have like one like colleague of mine, they gave me a little tiny, you know, stethoscope adapter, but it was, a, you know, it's an antique thing. And he's part of the donators of, to the museum. And they have another colleague from California. He, when he retired, he donated a lot of his endotracheal tubes and other devices that he had. So I have, uh, you know, people that contribute uh, significantly to the museum um, just for the good of their heart. 
And with that, I have, and it probably is in display, one of the oldest masks that we have. It's from 1874. And it was done by a surgeon, uh, Dr. Alice, who actually made many uh, surgical instruments as well. And this was a mask to administer ether. And this mask actually was purchased by the wife of one of our surgeons, Theodore Eisenstadt, which is a colorectal surgeon in our uh, hospital. And uh, she bought this for him as a gift in an antiques house and, uh, in 1982. And then he, uh, a year or two ago, donated to the museum. So, you know, there are uh, several valuable pieces in, in the museum, uh, even rare pieces uh, that are, uh, you know, very difficult to find. Very, very exciting. Well, Enrique, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for the enthusiasm and, uh, and also taking the time to, you know, to join us here. It's, a, it's really very interesting. And I think it, it, it's consistent with the strength of your department, of the academic mission, you know, and I just think the appreciation of everything that is changing and happening here. So, uh, again, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate, you know, Robertwood, you know, is and has been my house uh, since I've been uh, here for so uh, many, many years. And it's good to, you know, uh, be even more integrated in, in an aspect that is uh, so important to me and, and so representative of us as physicians and, and all the tribulations that we've gone through. So I appreciate the opportunity again. As we advance medicine, never losing sight of the past. Dr. Enrique Pentin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, uh, both of you. As always, Medically Necessary is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We have the playlist on YouTube, and we are available through the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff Portal. For Dr. Jim Salwitz. For Chris Honig. Thank you for listening. Medically Necessary, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Foundation.